Welcome to Anchor Point, where we believe that the next 30 minutes could change your life forever. So join us to consider the greatest message ever heard, the good news of the gospel, as well as sound scriptural teaching for believers, all based on the Word of God, the anchor for our souls. The Hallelujah Chorus is one of the most famous pieces of music ever composed. How beautiful are the words and praise of the only true God of heaven, the God of the Bible. Have you ever praised the Lord in music or song? Now God certainly deserves all praise and honor by virtue of his own essence and inherent glory. All creatures in heaven and earth are obliged to acknowledge his greatness and his majesty because of this fact alone. But in today's broadcast, speaker Eugene Higgins looks at some of the reasons that God should receive praise from all men. Some of these include the very fact of creation, the extraordinary world all around us, our own bodies by which we experience and enjoy it, our souls so that we can appreciate its beauty and relationships with other human beings, and yes, our spirits by which we can enjoy God and interact with Him. Also, There is God's great work of salvation in redeeming sinful man back to himself. What a tremendous thing that is! And then there is a coming final restoration of this broken world at the return of Christ to the earth. These are just some of the reasons we should shout, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! Listen to today's message as Mr. Higgins explains further. Chapter 9, the last verse in the chapter, verse 15. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Now you will notice the way this is phrased, that this is not merely an addendum to the discussion that's going on. This is an outburst of praise from this man's heart as he thinks about the generosity of some Christians who have sent supplies to help some other Christians who were in a time of famine, and then thinks about the matchless generosity of God. And it elicits this note of praise from his heart, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Now, the rest of our readings will be in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Chapter 19, verse 1. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Notice verse 6. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And finally in chapter 22. This is a picture of what eternity is going to be like for people who are saved. It is a glorious passage. Revelation chapter 22, and we'll break in at verse 3. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, 
and they shall reign forever and ever. We're considering tonight one of the most famous pieces in all of music, the Hallelujah Chorus. Hallelujah, of course, is from the Hebrew word for praise with the name of God on the end, Hallel, and it looks in English like Jah, but I believe it's pronounced Yah, and it is a transliteration from the Hebrew meaning praise the Lord. It occurs four times in the New Testament, all of them in the book of Revelation, but numerous times in the book of Psalms, you read that statement, praise the Lord. In fact, there is a watershed psalm that you're reaching when you get to Psalm 145. It's the only psalm in the book, and it's called David's Psalm of Praise. And in that one, he says in verse 3, great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Now, from that point on, every psalm for the rest of the book, all the rest of them, begin and end with the statement, praise the Lord, until you get to the final 150th Psalm, and it opens with that phrase, praise the Lord, and then every verse from then on, twice over, two times in each verse, you're talking about praise the Lord. It's telling us where to praise him, how to praise him, why we should praise him, and by whom he should be praised. That's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to tell you how deserving God is of our thanks for what he has done. I want you to think of how mightily God deserves to be thanked for life for life, for this planet, and for the ability to actually live. You see, life was imported here. There is a growing sense of concern that, in the scientific world, that Darwinian evolution is really not supplying all the answers. And so there are many very intelligent people, otherwise intelligent people, who have tried to tell us where life has come from. One of them, and it is Dr. Professor Crick, who was the co-finder and uh, postulating of the DNA, who decided that it had to come from somewhere else. So he thinks that aliens landed on the planet. And like you would throw seed in a garden, they sowed life. And here we are. It developed. It came from another world. You know, he's so close <laughs> and yet so far away. Life was imported. Life was imported to this planet from another world. But it wasn't an alien who brought it. Life the Bible tells us life was in Christ, and he bestowed it on humankind. He imparted life in a creation that his master mind had developed, had orchestrated, and had brought into being. It was the power of his word that created the universe. And the Bible tells us that it is the word of his power that holds it all together that gives cohesion to our universe so that the very position, for instance, of our planet is so significant. Closer to the sun and we would fry. Further away and we would freeze. Even its axial tilt is remarkable. If the earth didn't have a tilted axis, there wouldn't be any seasons. But yet the Lord Jesus foresaw that, didn't he? When he created a world in which we could live. And somebody has said the likelihood of that happening by natural causes, just, just happening. I'd like to just give you the description by Michael Turner, an astrophysicist at the University of Chicago in Fermilab. This is how he put it. The precision involved in this is as if one could throw a dart across the entire universe and hit a bullseye one millimeter in diameter on the other side of the universe. And yet here we are, because he created this world. He created us. He provided the planet. The pleasantness of it is a complete bonus 
God could have made a monochromatic world, colorless and drab. Instead, there are lush, verdant plains and towering snow-capped mountains and sparkling blue oceans. All of that is just a, it's just a bonus thrown in. It wasn't necessary. But color, variety, beauty, they're all silently but beautifully preaching that there is a creator, an all-wise creator. Isn't he to be praised that he put people on the planet and created human beings as we are, that he gave us bodies so that we could interact with our environment in marvelous ways? You know, it was Aristotle who posited that we have five senses. And so as I was going through school, I was always told about the five senses. But actually, neurologists identify nine or more senses today. And some of them think that we have as many as 21 in our bodies. God is the one who designed our body. He gave us souls to appreciate, among other things, beauty, symmetry, order, music, and other human beings. And he gave us spirits so that we could appreciate God, our creator, and be able to interact with him. Shouldn't he be praised for that? There is a God who made us, to whom I am accountable, a God I will one day meet, a God who loves me, a God who has communicated in his word and told me what he has done so that I can be ready to meet him. So I would like to ask you at this point in the meeting, is Christ your Savior? Is Christ your Savior? If you died tonight, what would be your hopes of getting into heaven? Would you stand before God and say, well, God, I've done the best I can. There were a lot of people who did worse than I. Would you stand before God and say, well, I went to church regularly and I was baptized? You must understand that the Bible says there is only one way into heaven, and it is by trusting Christ as your Savior and being born again. Nothing else will get you into heaven. Nothing else. What are you hoping to get you to heaven? You don't want to wait till you die and then find out you didn't have what you needed. That would be a tragedy beyond description. It may be that there are countless people who are just assuming that everything is all right. They go to church. They're kind to their neighbors. They don't do anything really vile or sinful. They try to live a good, clean, moral, honest life. And they figure that, shouldn't that get me into heaven? What if it won't? What if you found out from the Bible that that won't get you into heaven? Do you really want to die and then find out that that's the case after it's too late? Wouldn't it be wiser tonight to find out? If I need to have a moment in my life when I actually receive eternal life from God, if that's what God says, then I'm going to find that out tonight. And I want to make sure that when I die, I will be in heaven. You do not want to die and have to admit to God, I trusted the system, that it would get me into heaven, that my, my church would be good enough, that my religion would be good enough. I trusted that and it failed me because what we're talking about is heaven or hell for eternity. There's nothing more important in your life. If you live to be 105, there is nothing more vital, important or pressing in your life than this, where you will be in eternity. Shouldn't he be praised? Shouldn't there be hallelujahs for a God of such wisdom in creating the world as he did? But I want you to think of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, that the creator came into our world. Now, as far as we know, human nature has existed in four modes, if I could put it that way. There is, of course, innocent human nature. That was like Adam and Eve before they turned to sin. Then there is sinful human nature. That is like Adam and Eve after they sinned, and all of us who have inherited that very nature, a sinful nature. Then there is holy human nature. That was seen in Christ, in his incarnation. He did not sin. He could not sin. There was no sin in him. He was impeccable. And then there is glorified human nature, like the redeemed, like saved men and women who will have when Christ returns, and they are humans who will be forever free from sin. But just think about the, the incarnation, the coming into this world of the Lord Jesus. You see, 
No new person came into existence at the conception and birth of the Lord Jesus. No new person came into existence. He existed previously. A new human being began. But the person had always existed. He was born a king, not a prince, like others can be born. He was born with all the qualifications to reign. Because he was born of a virgin, it bypassed the ban that God announced on that whole line of Judean kings when they had sinned. And he was born a savior, not a sinner like us. He was born with all the qualifications to redeem. The virgin birth bypassed the sinful nature that is passed on from parents to child. That's the one who can be your savior tonight. And he came all the way from heaven for you. A cosmic rescue mission. From the throne of God to a feeding trough at Bethlehem was all part of the gift that he and his father were giving to you. That he became a man. Can I tell you about his grace? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor? You see, there is no explanation as to why the Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God, would be willing to become a man forever. This would involve poverty, shame, Suffering, pain, hunger, thirst, sorrow, bereavement. He knew that by his coming, something that we wouldn't have thought of, he knew that by his coming, his name would be a perennial swear word for sinners all down the ages. Christmas reminds us of a miracle that's beyond grasping, that God not only visited us, but became one of us. Why? I mean, we think we're important. We think we're vital. But we meant nothing to him. He could have wiped the planet free of us and started a whole new creation. He could have created creatures that would never have rebelled. Why would he bother with such wretched creatures as we are? And yet he came and he bled and he died and he gave himself to save you from your sins. Could it be that you are sitting in the meeting tonight? And you're pondering salvation and wondering how can I get this difficult thing and how can I be saved when all the time God is offering you his son and you are refusing Christ? You will not take him tonight as your savior? How hard your heart must be. How dark is the mind of a human being who can hear about that cross, that man, that blood, that death, that suffering and forget all about it. No, he is to be praised. Hallelujahs will ring around his head forever for what he did on that cross. You see, when you think about the subject of redemption, because first, Christ does the absolutely incredible thing, absolutely incredible thing of becoming one of us. Then he completely surpasses that by dying on our behalf, by sacrificing himself for us. What a wonder is this, that he would love us when we were ruined sinners marked by everything that should have repulsed him. Sin, iniquity, transgressions, wickedness, that we were rebels filled with a resistance against him. Why would he go to a cross and die for you? Why would he give his life? The work that he accomplished, should he not be praised for that work of redemption? I didn't understand it. And I listened to the best of preachers telling it. So I'm not going to imagine that somehow I've been able to communicate it to you when I sat in complete darkness and ignorance about it. But I never understood that what he did on the cross was not a part of salvation. It wasn't, it wasn't that he had done the mammoth percentage of what had to be done, and God was just waiting for me to do my little bit. That's not the meaning of it is finished. The meaning of it is finished is it is finished. It's done. It's complete. It's paid in full. There's an infinite value. 
If there were creatures living on every planet in the universe and he had died for them, then there would be enough value in what he did to save the entire universe. There's enough for you tonight, friend. This work can take you in. It is finished means you can come just as you are, a guilty sinner, and you can trust the Lord Jesus and he will never let you fall. He will never let you fail. He will never let you slip through his fingers. Never. I'm sure you have read the account of England's Queen Victoria, that she was deeply moved after she heard the Bible being read and the gospel being spoken. And after the service was done, she asked her chaplain this important question. Queen Victoria asked him, can anyone be absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety? How's that for an important question? Can anyone be absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety? And her chaplain did not have the answer. But when that was reported, an evangelist named John Townsend heard about it. I'm going to read you the letter that he wrote to the queen. This is what he wrote. Quote, with trembling hands, but heartfelt love. And because I know that we can be absolutely sure now of our eternal life in the home that Jesus went to prepare, may I ask your most gracious majesty to read the following passages of scripture. John 3.16 and Romans 10 verses 9 and 10. End of quote. Two weeks later, John Townsend received a letter from Queen Victoria. Quote, I have carefully and prayerfully read the portions of scripture referred to. I believe in the finished work of Christ for me and trust by God's grace to meet you in that home of which he said, I go to prepare a place for you, Victoria Guelph. Is that what you're trusting in tonight? The finished work of Christ? That's what I'm trusting. And I'm going to shout hallelujah forever for a work that redeemed me from my sins. You know, I wasn't long saved. I remember the first time I heard these words and they were stunning to me. Here they go. Robert Murray Machine. When I hear the wicked call on the rocks and hills to fall, when I see them start and shrink on the fiery deluge brink, then, Lord, shall I fully know not till then how much I owe. You get the picture of a saved person with the Lord Jesus watching the lake of fire being opened and sinners who refuse to trust Christ, who refuse to repent, are waved away into the lake of fire. And the author is saying, it's only then that I'll begin to understand how much I owe to Christ and to Calvary. Is he not, I repeat, is he not to be praised for the work he did on the cross? I want to close with just one more thing. I want you to think about the subject of restoration and what's going to happen to this poor tear-filled planet of ours when the Lord Jesus takes control. I just want to point out to you four undeniable things about our world and tell you the great change is going to take place when the Lord Jesus finally sits on his throne. We live in a world of want. We live in a world of war. We live in a world of woe, and we live in a world of weariness. Now just listen for just a few minutes, and the meeting will be done. The earth, this planet, when the Lord Jesus comes back, it is going to experience abundance and plenty. Hunger and famine will be a thing of the past. The Old Testament prophet put it in such a glowingly picturesque way when he said the plowman is going to overtake the reaper that they're not done reaping the crop and the plowman's nipping at their heels. Come on, get, get the, get, gather the food in. It's time to, to break up the ground and plow again. And David described what it would be like when the Lord Jesus is reigning, that mountaintops that today are foreboding, ice-capped, frigid places where nothing could grow of any benefit, that there will be farmlands there and that throughout the world there will be no more hunger no more thirst, there will be no more famine, there will be no more shortage, a world of want. 
that has been mismanaged by sinful man will all be gone. Because we live in a world of war, don't we? You know, if you didn't know about it, I was thinking the other day, if you weren't familiar with history, if somebody somehow just plopped you for the first time down in a history class and you began to hear about the constant, ceaseless, age-long battles and wars being fought, wouldn't you ask why? I mean, what's wrong with us that we can't get along, that we're constantly fighting? Here's what the Bible says when the Lord Jesus takes his throne. They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Peace will come into this world. You know, we live in a world of woe. If this back wall were a bank of security cameras, and, and these were the monitors here, and you were looking at cameras all over the world, think of what would be behind me here in these monitors. Think of the countless funeral processions winding their way to cemeteries throughout the world, the rivers of tears being shed, the broken-hearted women and men who were looking at the coffins, the remains of children and others at spouses. And think of the grief and pain and suffering. But when Christ comes back and sin is removed from our world, God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more sorrow or crying. Neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. I love the way the late Walter Martin put it. He said, I have read the last chapter in the book and Christ is going to win. Make sure you're not on the losing side. Because you see, right now you live in a world of weariness. The ceaseless unrest that marks human beings, the strife, the toil, the clamor, the unrest, all that is going to cease forever. The Lord Jesus is going to bring rest to this troubled planet and turn a ruined world into a glorious paradise. And his people will live with him in a new heavens and a new earth for eternity. And we want you there with us. No, your absence will not detract a moment from our joy, but just here and now on this side of it. We can't imagine being there without you. We want you there with us. Will you take him tonight? Christ, will you take him tonight? Not a verse, not something you do. Will you receive Christ? The late Mr. Archie Stewart used to tell about the Scottish preacher who was preaching and talked about sinners receiving Christ. And when he was done, the old Scottish woman came up to him and just said in her thick brogue, she said, Sir, give me him and I'll take him home with me tonight. Just give me him and I'll take him home with me tonight. Will you take Christ? Because as many as receive him, they become the children of God. And if you do receive him, then you'll join us in heaven. And I can't tell you all that we're going to sing in heaven. But I can certainly tell you one of the words that's going to ring through the vaulted skies for eternity. And it's going to be, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Yes, we have a wonderful God worthy of all praise and adoration from our very hearts. Perhaps you've never considered God's worthiness before. Perhaps you've had wrong thoughts about God all of your life. Perhaps you've never considered His power, wisdom, love, and grace before. Yes, He is holy and just and will not tolerate sin, but He loves mankind. He loves you. Have you praised Him today for His marvelous creation? Have you thanked Him for creating you? And most importantly, have you praised and thanked Him for providing a Savior for you? 
Have you accepted Christ as your own? Only then can you sing the Hallelujah Chorus from the very depths of your heart, knowing the Lord God personally and being a part of His family forever. If this or any of our Bible messages here at Anchor Point has made you aware of God's interest in you, or if you'd like some literature or a visit that would help you understand these important truths, why don't you drop us a line at anchorpointradio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're glad you were able to join us at Anchor Point today. Anchor Point is sponsored by believers in Christ who are meeting at various gospel halls. Each of these Christian assemblies holds gospel services every Sunday, as well as other meetings such as regular prayer and Bible studies throughout the week. If you've been challenged by today's message and would like to know more about the truth of the gospel or of gathering unto the name of the Lord Jesus Christ following New Testament principles, take a look at our Anchor Point website at anchorpointradio.com. There you will find more information as well as the location, programs, and meeting schedules for the gathering center nearest you. My name is Glenn Todd. Thank you once again for listening, and we invite you to join us again next week at the same time for Anchor Point, where we believe that Christ alone is the anchor for the soul.